Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our, our final uh, Ask the Expert uh, session uh, for this, for this uh, summer. We'll come back in September. Uh, we're still going to, we, we need to decide if we're going to do it on Friday or a different date. And we may send out a survey and see what actually works for you. But it's been really terrific having you the, this whole time uh, the, uh, during the, uh, obviously, the very complicated, difficult pandemic. Uh, we're making it through. John will provide some uh, updates on, on our numbers here. And of course, the rest of the country is in, in some uh, degree of trouble. But before, we, uh, before I hand it off to John and then uh, uh, two really uh, fantastic special guests, uh, Danielle Warren and Angel Ruiz, who, who I know quite well, and I'll introduce them in just a second, I want to um, do two things. The, the first is, is uh, I think, really meaningful and important today. Um, and th this came out in the New York Times, and uh, it was written by John Lewis, uh, who, as all of you know, died on July 17th. And he wrote this essay shortly before his death, uh, which was to be published upon the day of his funeral. And it was published yesterday, July 30th. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I urge you to go into the New York Times page and read it. Um, and this is what he said, and I'll read the first and last paragraph. While my time here has now come to an end, I want you to know that in the last days and hours of my life, you inspired me. You filled me with hope about the next chapter of the great American story when you use your power to make a difference in our society. Millions of people motivated simply by human compassion laid down the burdens of division. Around the country and the world, you set aside race class, age, language, and nationality to demand respect for human dignity. And he goes on, and it's really an amazing, an amazing piece. And what I'm challenging all of you now is to follow his lead, and here's what he said. Though I may not be here with you, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. In my life, I have done all I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Now it's your turn to let freedom ring. When historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters. Let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. And with that, if we just take a moment of silence and remember this civil rights, this civil rights leader who was just amazing and a, an example to all of us. Thank you. Now, um, I also want to take time today to recognize somebody who's really championed uh, knowledge, moving forward, being objective, positive, giving us some hope in the midst of the pandemic, and that's John. Um, and John came to us, uh, it couldn't have come at a better time for me, and uh, took over the role of Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases. I don't think when, when, when we hired him to this that he actually knew the pandemic was coming, uh, and maybe he's had second thoughts about it. but. Um, I am just so honored that I've been able to work with John uh, during this time, and, and I want to take time this last Friday of Ask the Experts to do two things. One is we, we, we announced uh, 
uh, last at the town hall on Tuesday that he was the recipient of one of the Tony Fauci dolls. We actually have the doll here with him, and, and we'll properly disinfect it so he doesn't get infected. Uh, and so, so this is the this is the Fauci doll uh, that is. Uh, we gave uh, four of them. Uh, one of them goes to John Shriver uh, for providing great scientific information to all of you, real numbers, real things, things that are very useful to you. And, and so, so John, you are highly deserving of the of the Shriver uh, doll. <laughs> I'm going to call it. So, uh, you know, congratulations on this. And um, you know, normally I would have him up here, but we got to be socially distant, and that's you know following the rule by Dr. Fauci. And we have a, uh, a plaque for you, John, that, uh, if, you know, and here's what it says, and, and thank you to Angie who helped me put this together. And it says, thank you for your support and guidance during the COVID-19 pandemic. To John Shriver, MD, MPH, Interim Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Immunology, Connecticut Children's, is a visiting professor of pediatrics at UConn School of Medicine. And the quote from Martin Luther King, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And you've, you've stood with us there, John, and I, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being stable presence and solid presence. You've helped me tremendously. I think you've helped all the pediatricians and nurses, APRNs, and people that have joined uh, through this time. And, and you stood with, with uh, confidence and, and doing the right thing. We also have for the winter months, um, you'll have uh, something that you can wear, you know, from Connecticut Children's. And so this is for you. I, I hope it fits. I think it does. Um, and, uh, you know, with, so this is something that we'll put in an appropriately uh, disinfected bag for you. Um, and uh, so with, with that, I, uh, again, thank you. Congratulations on all the things that you've done. Thank you well, 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 well deserved. And I'm going to now pass it on to uh, John, and then we'll, I'll introduce Danielle and Angel when uh, John is done with his presentation. So John, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Juan. Um, uh, I am I'm humbled. I, I, um, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I, I think um, it's with everlasting gratitude uh, to you and to Connecticut Children's where I've been allowed to have purpose uh, during a pandemic. You know, I had retired, and uh, I, I'm everlasting grateful for the opportunity to have purpose through this. Um, Thank you. And I, I have one more comment in terms of uh, your comments about laying um, really a national hero to rest. Um, you know, the word patriotism has been just bounced around so much the last months. And I, I will say um, he was a true patriot. Uh, he loved America and he loved the promise of America being what it all could be and the way to guide us to that through nonviolence, but persistence and never giving up. So that's a patriot. All right, we'll get going uh, on getting back on the rails. Thank you, Juan, again. Um, I'm really humbled by um, the Fauci doll. I'm not sure where I'm going to put it. Um, and, uh, and the plaque, thank you. All right, uh, there is a hurricane coming, actually. And I apologize, I have a lot of slides today because it's the last one of the summer and I'm probably gonna run just a little bit over, but I'll move quickly. We know the southeastern epidemic is spreading up the East Coast. There's a lot of travel, it is what it is. And uh, we are going to have spread from travelers in our region. The Northeast has successfully managed this outbreak, but we are gonna be challenged in the coming months with imported cases and waning public energy for social distancing and masks. I and mean, I already see it eroding. I see people not putting on the mask as often. And so we're gonna to need to continue to remind people that this is not over yet. And we have the opportunity to continue to manage this. 
consistent messaging, leadership, data-driven decisions need to happen. And we need to stop the nonsense uh, and focus on what do the data show us and that's how we need to reopen and that's how we need to manage this pandemic. And if we do that, we will do okay with this. Now, Connecticut is doing well still. The top are the number of confirmed cases. We remain very low. This is uh, three to four days ago. Um, deaths are way down. I think a couple of days were zero, a few each day. And so we're in a good place, but there's some upticks and we have to be vigilant. If you look at hospitalizations in Connecticut, um, there's an uptick in the Hartford area. We had a couple of more people hospitalized and uh, New Haven bounces around a little bit. Fairfield up one or two cases. So we need to be very vigilant. Um, and uh, as people come cruising up 95, maybe to come to the beaches, and pass through or stay in Connecticut, some of them will be infected, wear our masks, wash our hands. Now the travel advisory, I can't keep up with it. This is the Connecticut travel advisory. And since I put it, there are three more states were added. Those are the black X's. So the reality is the only place to travel realistically is the Northeast if you're gonna travel. And there are lots of great places to go this summer. If you do need to travel, and, and my family might, you know, do your Connecticut style put on the mask wash your hands six feet away from people don't go into the store unless you have to um, and, and be vigilant because some of these states have a lot of cases per hundred thousand now now the united states as you saw we shot up in mid-june i've been talking to you about this we are leveling out um, in terms of new cases so you know leveling out is 65,000 new cases a day those are what we know about Unfortunately, as I mentioned last week, the death rates lag because it takes a few weeks for people in the incubation period, then they get sick, and then they end up in the hospital, and it takes a couple weeks if they pass away. So the deaths are shooting up, and we're over 1,000 a day in the United States. So if you annualize that, that 365,000, uh, you know, that would be bad. So, you know, this is just unacceptable and something we all need to look at. These are real people with real families, and um, this cannot be ignored. What's happening in the rest of the world? I mentioned to this you earlier on, in, in the old days when you watched the news, they actually had five minutes on the world. We don't seem to do that anymore. We're very hyper-focused on us. But the reality is there is a whole world out there managing this pandemic. And by and large, the developed world, with the exception of the United States, has controlled this pandemic. I'm gonna show you some of those data. There are upticks in many countries but they have substantially controlled this pandemic and have in a controlled way reopened their economy. The United States falls in the category of the developing world and we are struggling to contain the pandemic. Who would have thought that's where we would be? This is Germany currently. Um, they had a huge spike uh, on, on par with Florida actually, but it was a pretty big spike back in April. They got it under control. The deaths are way down. They are having upticks. You can see late July, they're, they're having some upticks. They're very concerned about it, but their uptick, you know, looks like Connecticut. It's not much. And so um, this is Germany with millions. It's a big country. This is Canada. Our neighbor to the north got it under control. They are in the midst of an uptick. You can see a resurgence occurring in late July. However, their death rate is way down. It's less than 20 a day. We have 1,000 a day in the United States. So again, our neighbor to the north has done a very good job in controlling this. 
Brazil has an uncontrolled epidemic, um, out of control, 60, like us, 60,000 new cases a day, very similar to the United States curve, although we're leveling out a little bit. Um, and their death rate uh, is like ours, over 1,000 a day. This is Brazil, and this is exactly what the United States curve looks like. Now, Florida, as the last few weeks I've shown you, has had a dreadful outbreak, completely uncontrolled. That's leveling out. And it looks like that's substantially due to some local efforts in Miami and the hotbeds of really trying to clamp down, get the bars shut down, and, and to get people to wear masks. And so it's leveling out, but it's still 10,000 cases a day. And the death rate lagged and is now shot up. So there's 150, 200 deaths a day in Florida right now. So, um, and you might look at those curves and you'll notice they look very much like Brazil. Uh, it's an uncontrolled epidemic. This is Italy. Italy uh, was a, the worst in the EU, uh, an out-of-control epidemic with a lot of deaths. Their ICUs were overwhelmed. This is where they are in late July. They have this under control. And you will, I will show you later uh, their schools have reopened and how they're doing that. So again, this can be done. This is Italy, um, the, the worst country in the EU for the pandemic outbreak. This is New York, very similar to Italy. Um, also shows that we can do this. New York is diverse. They're not known for their acquiescence to orders. And you can see New York has got it under control. So the United States, we know what we need to do. We could all look like this if we chose to act on the data and do this. So uh, New York, very similar to Italy, has it under control right now. All right, let's give you some vaccine updates. The Moderna RNA vaccine that encodes the spike protein has moved to phase three clinical trials and 30,000 volunteers. I do want you to know that's still a minuscule uh, vaccine trial, but it's great that it's moving forward. And there are other, I think three other vaccines are moving into phase three clinical trials. Now phase three means you're actually looking at efficacy. And I guess the silver lining, the fact that the United States has such a horrendous outbreak means that we can actually test this vaccine in real time and see if it works, which we are doing, and in Brazil. So um, this is good news, and we will follow this closely and look at the efficacy in the coming months. But this is going to take months to determine efficacy. Now, there's some new data showing potential mutations in spike proteins that may allow this virus to elude antibodies elicited by vaccines. It's a little bit like influenza. So we're going to watch this closely. So far, it's not nearly the amount of mutation that influenza does, but it's there. And I'm going to show you uh, in this study, the second graph with those red dots, what they did is they actually grew the virus around neutralizing antibodies, and they were able to induce mutations that were resistant to those antibodies. That's the red graph. And also on the bottom, the purple dots, those are, those are viruses that ended up uh, being resistant to the neutralizing antibodies uh, that were used to, to the spike protein. So we have to watch this closely uh, in the real world, out in the field, and make sure that we're not inducing uh, some resistant strains as we immunize. There's another mutation that's been noticed. Um, this, this mutation is a slight change in the glycoprotein that binds to the ACE2 receptor, and it binds better. And this strain, the G614 strain, has taken over the world. It was not the original strain. It appears to be more infectious and binds to the ACE2 receptor stronger. It's natural selection, right? 
Uh, and so this virus binds better, infects more people, and that becomes the dominant strain. So we need to keep watching this. There's some changes in the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and uh, we will watch closely going forwards on this. Now, so in summary on the vaccines, we're going to take a break for the summer, so I'm going to leave you with this. There will be multiple vaccines in use next year. We don't know how long immunity will last, and we don't know if this will be an annual outbreak requiring frequent immunizations like influenza. We don't know the role of viral mutation, and we don't know yet which vaccine will be best for children and the elderly. So all this will sort itself out, I think, in the next 6 to 12 months, uh, but we're moving forward in, in record time with vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. What are we going to do about restarting schools in Connecticut? So I, I must have had 20 emails about this in the last couple of weeks, and I, I'm on a committee now um, with superintendents and, and others. And so I think, again, where I started to look, let's get guidance from the rest of the world that perhaps has done a little bit better job than we have on this. So the World Health Organization, which, by the way, we no longer belong to, um, WHO, which uh, is a pretty good organization, they put out basic principles to reopen schools. Basic principles are keeping students, teachers, and staff safe and stopping the spread of disease. It sounds simple. It sounds silly, but it really is important. So sick students and teachers and staff don't come to school. Schools enforce hand washing make it available you know, with the disinfectants. They daily disinfect the school surfaces. They have to provide appropriate sanitation. In other words, the bathroom can't have 20 kids in it. You're going to have to figure this out. And you have to promote social distancing, and that probably includes masks. The other principle that um, WHO put out there is that plan ahead so that if you have a positive kid, you know what to do. How does this person get tested? How do you separate them? Where do you put them when the parents are coming to pick up the kid who's got fever? Make this all ahead of time process so that there are no surprises. And which healthcare facility are you going to use if they get sick? Things like that. And I think these are great principles to sort of for foundations of how you would open schools. Now, this is school opening around the world. And you can see on the left are the requirements they had to open the schools. And the right are two Chinese um, cities, Hong Kong, Belgium, Texas, and Idaho, different places that are trying to. You know, Texas is probably not going to do so with reopening schools right now. So if you look at uh, Chengdu, China, they take body temperatures at home and they report it. There's a staggered rush hour uh, for different grades getting in. There's designated pickup and drop off. Body temperatures as you walk into school, they take the temperature. And uh, everyone has a face mask. Etc. You go down the list. In uh, Guangzhou, China, it's more aggressive, actually. Um, in, in, in that model, they've separated out the desks and space between the desks. Um, and uh, most places have shut down the cafeteria, and the students bring their own lunch. And you can go down the list. So this, and, and China has successfully reopened many of their schools with, with some minor upticks that they jump on. Hong Kong has ha had some upsur uh, resurgence, um, but there's some examples internationally that we could learn from where this has been successful. Now, Denmark restarted schools with some basic rules. And there has not been a large increase in COVID-19 in Denmark in the last few months after they did this. And they have the, the classroom students must be seated two meters apart. Students hand wash every two hours. 
all educational materials and equipment are cleaned twice a day. They added toilets and sinks so that they, they, they could separate the students out and, and it goes on. Parents drop off students at staggered times using different entrances and are not allowed in the building, etc. So uh, Denmark is another good model for us, which seems to have worked without causing a resurgence. Now this is kindergarten in Italy this summer. Um, this is what they're doing. Uh, the kids are, are separated. These are kids who are probably, some are too young for masks, some are not. And the teacher is far away. The students are separated out by at least three meters, uh, looks like. Uh, and it's a, there's some other tables in the picture that you can't see. So this is outdoor kindergarten in Italy. The summer works great in the summer and fall, not so good in New England winters. This is Japan. All students must have a face mask, and those too young to wear the regular mask has shields. Uh, they're given face shields, which I think is actually a, a, an opportunity we might think about in Connecticut uh, for kids who are too young to wear a mask. You can see they're having fun with it. It's kind of like a, a fun thing to have a face shield on like this. So that's another alternative to prevent spread. In Uruguay, by the way, Uruguay is fascinating. They have the lowest COVID-19 infection rate in South America. They've done an excellent job combating this. Uh, their economy is reopening. Their schools are reopened. And you can see here's a classroom in Uruguay. Uh, the kids are separated out. Every child has a mask. The teacher has a mask. And it looks like an uh, overcoat of some sort. That's probably changed each day. Uh, they all have their own computer. They're not sharing anything. and so. Uh, this is uh, typical of a successful reopening of a classroom in Uruguay, which has a much lower COVID infection rate than the United States of America. Israel, um, everybody wore masks, but they didn't do so good in physical distancing, and they've had a resurgence, and they've had to shut down the schools. This is probably not what to do. The masks are great, but if you're touching each other and you're three, three feet away, you know, three inches away, you're, you're going to defeat the purpose of the mask and social distancing. So the mask needs to be in uh, uh, with social distancing, physical distancing, sorry. Please don't send your email that I use the word social, physical distancing. Um, and you need to do both. You cannot just put a mask on and expect kids not to transmit this around. And unfortunately, um, Israel made a mistake early on with that. So uh, here's where we are, July 24th. Um, this is the last uh, session for the summer. Uh, we will resume after Labor Day. So everyone, please be safe. Um, have a good summer. Don't travel uh, to a hot area unless you have to. We remain stable. We have low community spread, few deaths right now. Our summer as pediatricians and providers is an opportunity to immunize well children, get them immunized before the winter, and to assist our communities to safely and carefully reopen schools unless our community spread grows, and then we may not have that opportunity. We continue to have no national plan or strategy to contain the virus in the United States. This has led to an unabated epidemic in most states, which are the curves are identical with those in the developing world. That's just fact. You can look at the curves. It's not political. We are on par with the developing world and having an uncontrolled, unabated epidemic in most of our states. The vaccine clinical trials are very promising, moving quickly, and likely to yield several different vaccines for use this winter. Once again, I, I want to thank everyone uh, for your attendance this year. It's been my privilege uh, to be able to do this, and I want to thank Dr. Salazar and Connecticut Children's Hospital for the opportunity uh, to be able to work with you through this pandemic and hopefully get us out on the other end of it next year in good shape. Thanks again.
Thank you, John. And um, we'll miss the uh, slide, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Maybe we'll come back in September. We'll just be the good. Uh, that's, that's what we think, and that's what we'll be. Uh, and it, it's my pleasure now to introduce two individuals who I work with uh, very closely, uh, Danielle Warren-Diaz and Angel Ruiz. Um, and Danielle is somebody that I, uh, I have worked for my, the entire time that I've been here at Connecticut Children's is almost 22, going in 23 years. Uh, Danielle is, uh, is uh, one of our highly experienced uh, social workers uh, who leads the pediatric, H pediatric and youth HIV program. Um, she lives in Hartford. She lives in the north end of Hartford. Uh, and she uh, lives what she preaches. And she's a champion for change. She's a p champion for equality, uh, champion for young people. Uh, who have HIV and those that are underserved. Uh, I, I just could not be more proud of, of having worked with Danielle. She's taught me a lot, um, and she's a powerhouse. Uh, I think you'll, <laughs> you'll hear uh, her as, as she gives her presentation, and uh, you know, she, she will tell it how it is, and that's what we need. Um, and uh, of course, with Danielle, we have a, an entire team that it's, uh, we can't have them all present here today. Uh, but she's recruited and retained some, some of the most amazing people that I know uh, who uh, live, you know, the values that John Lewis uh, preached for so many years. Uh, one of those is a, it's a young man, Angel Ruiz, uh, who is uh, uh, also one of our case managers for the HIV program in our community. And, uh, you know, again, a champion for everyone. And uh, if you need someone to help a young family, uh, a family of color, a Hispanic family, uh, a gay kid, um, Angel will, will go out of his way to do this. Uh, these are people that are here at Connecticut Children's and the Yukon School of Medicine, and uh, I'm very proud of them. And what they're going to tell us is the real stories from the front end. I mean, they've been, they've been uh, absolutely uh, involved with uh, the pandemic since day one, trying to find out who needs help and how to help them. And they'll give you some real life stories. And uh, so again, this is some, these are two individuals who I think represent exactly what's going on in our cities, and I'm going to pass it on to Danielle and then Angel to talk about the impact of COVID-19 in the inner city youth. Uh, Danielle, Angel, go ahead. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Salazar, and I, I definitely have to give you and Dr. Shriver a big shout out for your leadership. Um, you foster an environment that encourages us to be the best of who we are in our work, and I appreciate you both for that, and so does everyone else that works on our, with our team. So we're, we're humbled that we were asked to come and present on the impact of COVID-19 on our inner city youth. Next. So I, I wanna just give a brief background about um, the Pediatric Youth and Family HIV program at Connecticut Children's. It is a joint program between Connecticut Children's and Yukon Health. And we provide uh, medical care and treatment services. We provide psychosocial support services and we provide uh, prevention services as well. Next. So today, uh, Angel and I will be speaking to you from a, a, a syndemic lens for this uh, presentation. And we put in the definition, and a, a syndemic or synergistic epidemic involves the clustering of two or more diseases within a population. 
the biological, social, and psychological interaction of those diseases and the large scale social force that pr precipitate disease clustering in the first place. Now the lens we will be utilizing will be will include uh, psychosocial impacts, uh, racial, ethnic, and social inequities, sexual health, and COVID-19, and the impact of the clustering of these facets on inner city youth. We will discuss the effect that each of these aspects have on the other that causes for higher risks of adverse health outcomes. And then we'll end our presentation with uh, some meaningful recommendations, hopefully to enhance provider interactions with inner city youth. Next. So I'd like to quote the American Medical Association. Um, the conditions in which people live, learn, work, and play contribute to their physical, mental, and social health. These conditions over time lead to different levels of health risks, needs, and outcomes among some people in certain racial and ethnic minority groups. Next slide, please. So I'm going to begin with the psychosocial impacts of, COVID of the COVID-19 pandemic on the inner city youth that we serve. Um, and I, I do want to point out that although we will be discussing inner city youth, youth living in suburban and rural areas encounter some of these same experiences. Urban trauma for inner city youth. Historical urban trauma is an environmental um, exposure that has direct effect on an inner city youth. Living in condensely populated areas such as urban centers put inner city youth at higher risk at experiencing traumatic encounters, whether those encounters happen in their homes or not. Many social misfortunes and negative experiences that one's neighborhood encounters contributes to the individual trauma of the youth that live there. Adverse childhood experiences, such as neglect and abuse. You know, during the, uh, the pandemic, the increase of um, incidences became a great concern to Connecticut's Department of Children's and Families Protective Services. Violence, the increase in interpersonal violence during the quarantine actually caused for the Hartford Police Department to put together a special task force just to be able to address the spike in 911 calls for such incidences. And then there's the fears um, and anxieties that increased, thereby affecting the mental health of our youth. Some youth expressed feelings of hopelessness, anger, frustration, extreme anxiety and depression, requiring intervention sometimes from the staff um, at our program. Then there were youth in their senior year, you know, who had to miss out on major life events, like a, a proper graduation, a prom, championship game, you know, those things that are very, very important to young people. And another concern of ours that, that increased in our work was uh, the increase in substance use in particular synthetic marijuana, also known as K2, which can cause an extreme psychosis when it's used. This, this substance was more readily accessible to our youth than even condoms during this time. And then there was the isolation and, and lack of recreational outlets that intensified quarantine fatigue for the youth that we serve as well. Next slide. 
So now I want to touch upon the, the racial, um, ethnic, and social inequities that exasper, exacerbated, excuse me, that's the coffee, y'all, <laughs> the impact of COVID-19 pandemic in quarantine for inner city youth. One being financial inequities further increased during the COVID-19 pandemic, which further increased the economical gaps for inner city families. And that, that gap was already vast before the pandemic. Inner cities have some of the state's poorest communities. Many families live at or below the poverty level. And then there, uh, the concern about food insecurities and housing instability. Many youth and their families relied on school breakfasts and lunches for part of their nutritional needs. And all of a sudden, schools closed. But, you know, thankfully, you know, our team worked furiously to help youth we serve uh, with access to food security by tapping into the wonderful efforts of uh, programs like the public schools who continue their feeding efforts and, 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 and agencies like Food Share and, and the churches in our communities. Youth experiencing unstable housing and homelessness before the pandemic were put in dire straits, trying to figure out how will they survive a quarantine without a roof over their heads. The drastic increase in unemployment put housing issues at its all-time high, and it continues to rise as we speak. Our program's partnerships, however, um, and thankfully and gratefully, um, was able to cultivate uh, uh, collaboration with housing agencies in order to provide a coordinated attempt to house these youth, as well as young women with children who receive services. And, you know, and I have to say, we were able to make strides. We were able to house youth um, through this uh, collaborative effort. We were able to house young women who are now working their way through the housing continuum into affordable permanent housing. So the intense collaborations during these times has proven that when the village truly come together, no one has to go hungry or unhoused. That we can ensure the basic human needs for all. And then immigration status, uh, you know, have to touch upon that. That magnifies the gaps for access to services that we work so furiously and hard to, to be able to provide to even those families. But this gap is, is, is so magnified that it actually puts this population in risk of not wanting to go get a, a COVID-19 screening screen or, or, or access to pre prevention and care um, with fear that it would somehow interfere uh, with their family life because of their immigration status and the impact on the Latino and Latinx communities. You know, a community uh, that has a higher risk of being hospitalized um, from COVID-19 than even their white counterparts. And the reliance um, on income as essential workers, such as uh, store cashiers and maintenance workers, et cetera, that put certain sectors of this population, as well as others, at greater risk of exposure to COVID-19. And we would be remiss if we did not include the spotlight that COVID-19 puts on racial, ethnic, and social inequities that Black folk have endured in this country since slavery. 
the spotlight increase the fervor on the Black Lives Matter movement for our Black youth. During the quarantine, the world was more readily available to witness the reality of police brutality that many of our Black youth have historically endured. Again, frustration and anger ignited and Black youth catapulted many to speak out, to rally and protest against these injustices. Next. We pay homage to those who have lost their lives because of social injustice. And for those who have fought and fight for social justice. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Angel, who will speak to you through the lens or the portion of that lens with sexual health um, and COVID-19 and its impact on our inner city youth. Angel? Thank you, Danielle. Thank you for that. Um, like Danielle said, I'll be uh, briefly talking about the impact of COVID-19 quarantine has had on, on new sexual health behaviors. And to start, you know, we are in the middle of the pandemic, so there's much uh, research to be made, uh, made available and also data that will follow as this epidemic continues. Um, but what we do know so far is that youth have had a decreased access to their peers. And why is that? Well, we, we stopped having uh, in-class, uh, in-person classroom. We went uh, virtual for our classroom um, and different activities, outside activities and parties. What uh, we also know that, um, there have been a, a less access to different sexual partners, not necessarily having, uh, not having sex, still having sex. Uh, one concern that we do have is, is for our LGBTQU plus youth that we serve that might not have the support at home, um, especially if they haven't discussed their sexuality with their parents and might feel isolated. Um, the good thing is that we know that our young people are connected. Uh, many young people have a, a, a telephone accessible to them. So it has been proven to be a, a positive thing to avoid isolation and at least have they, they have somewhere to, to talk to, somebody to, to talk to. Um, we also notice a lack of access to reproductive health care. Many STD clinics and, and local health departments were closed throughout. Um, and anecdotally, I will tell you, my 16-year-old daughter tells me that Everybody in my class is either pregnant or got somebody pregnant. Now, I don't have data to support an increase in teen pregnancy or a decrease in teen pregnancy, but that's something that data that we need to take a look at as time passes and we gather that information. Regarding STD and HIV prevention, um, we noticed a sharp decline back in March. We, we noticed a sharp decline in our young people uh, assessing HIV testing and access to PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, and thanks to the leadership of Danielle, I have to say, we were able to collaborate with the Department of Public Health uh, to launch a self-HIV testing initiative. Um, and this is not only providing a self-test for a young person and connecting them into HIV care, but also aligning a community health worker to work alongside with that young person to make sure that they are linked into medical care, but also have access to those other supportive services like access to food or access to uh, mental health services. I added telemedicine uh, because in four months we've come to know a lot about telemedicine and I'm excited that we could expand our prevention efforts to reach more young people through telemedicine. Uh, we, we do have an opportunity um, because we know that cohort of young people most likely will be the one using this technology once 
uh, COVID is in our rearview mirror. Um, we do have to work with some issues regarding confidentiality because we know that young people don't have that same level of confidentiality as adults. Now, how can we uh, translate what we do so well in practice, right? And, and translate that into this platform. So we have some, you know, some things to learn about, uh, um, about this. Some recommendation, next slide, please. Some recommendations is just to continue using your platform uh, to continue COVID-19 education. I think, uh, like Dr. Schreiber said, you know, everybody continues to provide that information. I think we'd have to be consistent with providing information. Um, each person is unique. It's not gonna be one size fits all approach to young people. Um, and also the, the use of biomedical interventions like PrEP, I, I think that um, is a, a tool. If you have a young person that is at risk for HIV, has multiple STDs, I think that's a good person that, that it'll be a, a good candidate to refer them to the infectious disease department and also to our medical case management team and we'll be happy to help because sometimes we don't have the bandwidth. We don't have, you know, you're doing so much already. You could refer those in, um, young people uh, to our department. Next slide, please. And all, also integrating a, a sex positive approach with working with young people. It's not telling them to go ahead and have sex, but it's, you know, providing that education so they could be well informed. And just simply engage your patient, just build that trust and be genuine, you know. Just admit when something is uncomfortable because young people appreciate our honesty as, as providers. And, and with that, I, Danielle? Um, to, and, and also remember that inner city youth are youth of promise and resiliency. I mean, it's important to um, uh, understand uh, the trauma um, and, and the trauma approach that you could use. But we use a strength-based approach when um, working with the youth in, in our program. Uh, create safe spaces for Black and Latino youth to express themselves in their cultural way. Um, you know, uh, allow them to be themselves and, and know that it's, it's, it's okay uh, to, to be from where they are. Um, seek to engage youth, motivate them, inspire them, aspire them to get involved in civic engagement and on boards. And, and, and more importantly for, for providers, get them on your quality management team. You know, because nothing will work even better than having input on the quality improvement project than the people that you're trying to serve. And youth have a voice that should be heard. Um, and of course, it's, it's all of our um, responsibility to dismantle racism and work towards a collective healing. Next. So um, this ends um, our presentation, such a broad topic, like I, I could go on for weeks, um, but it, for the sake of time, um, we did uh, condense it. We, we bought the, the voices of the youth that we serve um, and it was important for us to do that. But I, I do want to um, give a special acknowledgement to um, our medical case management team, Consuelo Munoz, Mirna Melet-Zayas, um, Andrew, of course, um, who stepped up for this presentation, proud of you kid. Um, um, Nilda Fernandez, a bit in court. Um, and I, I have to give a special shout out to Grace Hung, who is a nurse practitioner in our clinics. And she, she you know, she emailed me and she gave input of, um, you know, what the youth that she's serving through this uh, pandemic is expressing. And it really mirrored what um, we um, are seeing ourselves. Next. 
So this concludes our presentation. I guess um, we're going to have some questions um, that Dr. Salazar, if we have time for it, uh, will, will give us if we have any. And um, the next slide um, is our contact information. Uh, so, you know, we could leave that up. If you'd like to get in contact with us, um, you can find us at the website. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Danielle and Angel, for you know very inspiring presentation, and thank you for what you're doing um, in the front lines with with our kids, really keeping them safe as much as you can. Very challenging. Uh, we have a number of questions. Uh, uh, let's let's start going through them. Um, all right, uh, this is from uh, Shannon. Um, a Shannon, uh, does the leveling off of numbers have to do with no longer reporting through the CDC? John. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I don't think so. Um, uh, there are a lot of agencies that are getting information directly from state health departments and bypassing this straw going to HHS now. Uh, Hopkins is, there are a couple of other organizations, and even the New York Times is delving into every state's Department of Public Health reporting. So I think it's probably real and represents the falling off. You see, I didn't show you Arizona, which has um, uh, really gotten the curve a little bit better. There's been a big push to wear masks in Arizona and, and to uh, shut down some of the larger um, uh, kinds of uh, bars and other places. So I think it's real, but it's not great. I mean, we're leveling off at a pretty high, you know, 50, 60,000 cases a day, but it's better than shooting up beyond that. So it's a worry, but I don't think right now it's a problem. Thank you, John. Uh, Danielle and Angel, and, and this is from Julie, uh, who sends you a message. Uh, Danielle, Angel, and team, you're amazing, and the work you do is invaluable. So proud of the work that you do. A question for you, Danielle. How easy is it for a young person in the, uh, in the city of Hartford or any of the inner cities to get, a, uh, to get uh, tested for uh, SARS-CoV? Is it, is it easy, hard, are there barriers? Can you comment on that? So um, thankfully, um, you know, of course, at the beginning, I guess with other communities as well, um, to getting tested was was extremely hard. Um, and we pushed and I, you know, I have to um, thank Nilda because she was like, add it, add it, add it because of how um, it, especially um, COVID-19 um, affects and impacts the black community. Um, and we wanted to make sure that when the um, testing really became community wide that they would target um, our communities um, appropriately. So um, now there, there are a lot of uh, testing um, activities going on. Um, you know, I can uh, ride around in my neighborhood sometimes and I'll see them like outside of the artist collective at our outside of our recreational um, centers um, and things of that nature so um, it, it the tests are are accessible um, at this point all right thanks Danielle um, from uh, Ed Zellneritis when I happen to my question this is SARS, SARS does not seem to be seasonal at this point what should we expect going forward John um, it is not seasonal and the data um, if you look at Australia, for example, right now, uh, where it's their winter, um, it doesn't seem to be affected by the difference in seasons. And same with Brazil, which is tropical and, and uh, hot right now. So uh, going forwards, you know, I, I can't tell you, Ed, I think we are going to see uh, a uptick because of travel. It's going to happen. And also because people are wearing down in the masks and the physical distancing and need to be constantly reminded of it. So 
uh, and we've opened our economy a bit. So there's going to be an uptick. The question is, how do we manage it? I think um, the next unknown is the influenza season for the year, and we don't know whether that's going to, every year is different. Uh, it's possible it'll be a mild year because people are already separated. A lot of them are wearing masks. We're already have downregulated our physical contact, and it's possible that will reduce the intensity of influenza, but I don't know. So I think the big unknowns are what the respiratory virus season is going to be this winter, and that's going to affect COVID uh, also. So, Ed, I, I wish I could predict. I will tell you, though, unfortunately, my belief is when I come back to you in September, we will have had an uptick. Um, but I think given where we are today, it's manageable. Danielle, uh, from one of our pediatricians, what is, not pre, but what is post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV? So, um, good question. Thank you. It's uh, one of our programs that we were newly funded for probably about two years ago through the Department of Public Health. And um, post-exposure -expo prophylaxis um, is a treatment, uh, a biomedical treatment that um, an individual can take that can um, drastically help prevent them from contracting HIV. And um, what happens is that the individuals actually prescribed um, HIV uh, medications and they take it daily. Um, and this um, decreases their likelihood of contracting um, HIV drastically. Thank you. Um, in the post, has, I'm sorry, Dr. Salazar, in the post-exposure prophylaxis, a person has up to 72 hours to get treated for post-exposure to ensure that they don't become infected with HIV. Um, so that's what post-exposure prophylaxis also uh, includes. So we have PrEP and, and PEP. Perfect. Thanks, Thank Angel. You. I was speaking to PrEP. Yeah, yeah. Good catch, child. <laughs> um, what tests should we have in our offices? Is the Abbott ID uh, a good one? Can we, can we do strep flu and COVID tests in our exam rooms, John? <laughs> uh, you can certainly do strep, and we traditionally have been able to do flu. Um, the COVID is more complex, and in fact, Juan and I have just been navigating this. There is a rapid diagnosis that's an ELISA. I think I've shown you guys that. It's a um, quick 15 minutes. It's much less sensitive. It's probably about 80% sensitive and unfortunately the FDA has licensed it basically saying that if it's a negative you need to go do PCR um, in, in most CLIA licensed labs that will be required so it's not been particularly helpful for us so right now my bet is in your office you're going to be able to do strep and you're going to be able to do um, flu uh, and other things much like we have traditionally and COVID may still stay um, as a testing center a PCR-based uh, test for now. So I think that's where it's sitting. I don't know if Juan, if you have any other, it's probably yeah, where it is. No, it, it, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the, the difficulty is the sensitivity uh, yeah. of, you know, of somebody that's, if you could miss that 10%, it's concerning that you could be labeled non-COVID and you are COVID. And that's the issue with the rapid tests that are antigen-based. Um, it's, it's hard. Uh, it, it, this is a question for you, John, also. Uh, please advise how to handle the influx of sick children sent home from the schools. They will want us, the pediatricians to clear them to go back to school. Without the capability of testing, what do we do? So I think um, oh, it's a great question. What do you do with a sick child who's sent home from school who they screen at the door? Say they get the temperature and it's febrile. Kid gets sent home and mom and dad call you. It's a great question. And one, first I would say the school district needs to have a plan 
for these kids. They can't just randomly say, call your pediatrician. They need to have an actual plan and they need to know coming back, is the child COVID positive or not? Because the school will have to do some things if the child's COVID positive. I think um, what, what, the way I would manage it is, the way we're sort of managing sick children now, some practices have them come into a, in a car, rapid strep is done. If that's positive, you sort of have an explanation. They're giving, given antibiotics. Um, I think we're going to have to manage it individually. If there's an obvious explanation for the fever uh, and you're able to examine the child and, and, and it's treated and gets better, then that child goes back to school the way any other um, mildly ill child would. If there's suspicion of COVID, then you need to do a COVID test and that family's gonna have to be sent to get that COVID test done because the district needs to know. And suspicion would be or any of the signs and symptoms we've all heard about, uh, a teenager lost their taste and smell. That's a COVID test, it needs to happen, even if it's, you know, they don't feel ill otherwise. Uh, a small child gets a rash on their toes, you know, COVID toes, that's a COVID test. So we're gonna need to be very nimble in managing this. A kid gets a sore throat and is strep, rapid strep positive, probably penicillin will work when, and you're gonna to need to do that. We're not gonna be 100% correct, uh, but um, we need to have a plan going forward for each one of these kids sent home. So it's a great question. Just anecdotally, the, uh, most of the kids that we have seen in infectious disease with fever, uh, I would say 99% are not COVID. They've had other illnesses, um, many Lyme disease patients, EBV, yeah. things like that. So the common pediatric illnesses will be the same. And, oh, that's, uh, I, I want to add, yeah. Juan, I think that's a great point. At the moment, we have very low community spread. It's not zero because there's still cases, but it's low. So to Juan's point, we don't want to miss the common pediatric illnesses that cause most of the, the kinds of infections that they have during the school year. So I think it's a very important point to reiterate that. Uh, Danielle and Angel, uh, uh, the question, this is from Gail, your colleague. Uh, please give an example of the difficulties youth experience with maintaining confidentiality using the telehealth platform. Angel? Yeah, hi Gail, yes. Um, well, we, we know that sometimes parents want to know what when, you know, when they are doing that televisit, they want to be present, they want to, you know, be around that young person. So some, you know, I, I had examples of a young person had to go to the hallway and explaining them to them, you know, through the chat, you know, are you, you know, are you able to talk right now? Is it, is it okay to talk about this? And through the chat uh, option, be able to, to discuss with that young person, oh, um, not, not right now, you know, mom is, literally like next to me. Uh, so just working with that young person and, and getting a, a safe space for them, you know, is that gonna be the bathroom? Is that gonna be the hallway for this young person? For me, it was the hallway. It was the safest place that we could have an honest discussion about where were we at with, with, with them. Um, Create very difficult situations sometimes. And uh, I think the, often if they're using headphones, um, that creates that you know, that at least the audio um, yes. space that is separate. So I, I, I always encourage that, you know, put your headset on as opposed to the room where you may have 15 people in that room, especially in the inner city. Yes. Um, all right, let's, uh, uh, do you have advice for flu vaccine clinics this fall, John? Uh, the only advice I have is let's immunize as many kids as we can and however you can do it, whether you're doing it in cars that are pulling up whether uh, you're gonna have clinics for well children um, and, uh, and immunize, I think there are multiple opportunities to get it done, particularly when we have low community spread. Not a lot of COVID right now. Get those well kids in any way we can, whether, like I say, cars, clinics, 
well child day and keep away any sick kids that day, whatever you can do to get those immunizations done. Again, from, uh, you know, the, this is from Neil Stein, one of our pediatricians. The low community spread allows for greater flexibility, but once school is open, how do we address student and staff illness? What criteria is used to dismiss a classroom unit or an entire school? Well, I don't have the answer for the latter part. I will say, um, I, in my opinion, and I don't know if Connecticut's decided to do this yet, clearly we don't want anyone ill in any school, whether it's a teacher, staff member, or student. So in my opinion, both employees and students should have temperature taken walking in the building each day. I don't know whether that's going to be state policy. I can't answer that. Just my opinion as an infectious disease doc. Once that happens, uh, you're going to have criteria. You can choose 100.4 uh, where children will not be allowed to come into the building or separated off into a safe room until parent or guardian can come pick them up and take them home. That child needs to uh, be in contact with their physician and a decision needs to be made. Um, if it's COVID risk and tested it's COVID, then we would follow the rules for a COVID positive person when they can come back. It's 10 days after symptoms and three days of no fever. We need to stick to that. If, it's, if the kid's COVID negative and they had a sore throat and they're afebrile for 48 hours, they could go back to school. So I think we're going to need to have criteria so the schools would know with clarity you know, which kids fit where, which kid is allowed to come back. Oh, it was group A strep, the kid's better, no fever for 48 hours, no problem. Ah, COVID positive, Mrs. Jones, it's 10 days, kid can't come back. So we're going to need to get those rules out to the schools, um, and, and we haven't quite gotten there yet. Great, and there, there are a lot of, uh, we, it's 8.58, we, we need to wrap up. Uh, there are a lot of questions about the rapid test, rapid turnaround, which, of course, we, we would love to have. Uh, in everyone's office, um, and that that will be, you know, if somebody figures it out, that's going to be fantastic. Rapid, well, a, a Cepheid, but I, uh, those that equipment and those cartridges are in short supply and back ordered. I do not believe they're going to be available for offices um, in a way that's going to be realistic right now for us. So rapid PCR may not be available in the office right now. And, and then the last testing question is for uh, Angel: uh, Are self-home HIV tests available to youth during this time? Yes, so we have uh, self-HIV testing during this time, and we could send it to a, a, ship it to a person's home if they would like, and then we'll get that community health worker to help them, uh, making sure they are, they know how to process the test, but also to get them linked into care and to follow up. That's great, and that's just amazing. I wish we had it for the, you know, for, for COVID. So take a moment uh, to thank uh, Danielle and Angel and their team. You know, we're talking at 5,000 feet in these talks, and they really are able to get us down into a neighborhood. And, and how are kids feeling in the neighborhood about this, and how are they managing with this? And I want to thank you, because I think at the end of the day, that's what our job is, is how do we manage people? And you, sometimes you're up in the clouds, you forget these are real kids in real neighborhoods with challenges managing this quarantine. So thank you. Appreciate it. So with that, I want to thank everyone, uh, Angel, Danielle, and John, for your presentation today, the entire team that's here in the, in the Connecticut Children's Studio for all the work they've done for the past five months. Uh, we, we will take a break for the next four weeks. Uh, thank you uh, to all the pediatricians, the nurses, the APRNs, the PAs, community workers, social workers that log into these presentations. Your, your comments are invaluable. We, we, we enjoy hearing them, or, and, and please... Uh, let us know how we want to handle this or how should we handle this in the, in the early or late summer, early fall. We will resume this. 
have a great August, uh, and hopefully when we come back, uh, we, you know, we will be on the other end of, of the of resurgence in the U.S. So take care, be safe, and we'll see you again. Bye-bye. Have a good summer, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.